If you look at the Bulletin of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences for a few months ago, you find an extremely interesting article by an American seismologist who went around China very recently and was shown everything. And he was tremendously impressed with the literally army of 25,000, quote, barefoot seismologists, which was busy in different parts of the country measuring radon content of deep wells, manning listening apparatus for rock slips, and doing all sorts of things which are going to help to predict. And there was a case, I think, at the beginning of this year where they felt one was coming. They thought the evidence was that one was coming, and they turned out the population of some town in Yunnan or southern Sichuan, and sure enough, it did come within an hour or two, and a lot of people, they saved a lot of lives on that occasion. Unfortunately, with Tangshan, it didn't work, and the situation remains obscure. We don't know. They're just trying, and they're trying it on a huge scale. He was very tall, a nudist, looked like a giant Harry Potter, wrote a thousand-page book on Chinese innovation, then six more books equally long, and influenced 20th century science on a truly gigantic scale. His name was Joseph Needham. Hello, Robin Williams of The Science Show, and Needham, you need to know, could be a clue to why our hundred Australian top scientists, if you get to know some of them, may be a way to galvanise our own science for a safe and vibrant future. You see, many people, and famed author Simon Winchester is one, are convinced that Needham's monumental works, when they got back to China, convinced Deng Xiaoping and the leadership that, yes, they had the brains and inventiveness already to end the century of humiliation, as they called it, and bounce back. Here's Winchester with his bomb, book and compass and Ramona Caval on the then book show a while ago. Well, this book is in the tradition of one arm of your interests, and that is, I suppose you could say, in reference books. We've spoken before about your work on the makers of the Oxford English Dictionary, and you've written on the making of the world's first geological map. So I can understand the pull of the Needham story, but tell us about this massive work, Science and Civilization in China. Give us a smell and a feel for it. Well, the first volume I got, I was doing a book on the Yangtze River, and I wanted to know something about the kind of junks that managed to get up the river against the phenomenal currents in what used to be the Three Gorges. Obviously, nowadays, there's this enormous dam and there are no great currents to fight against. But for many hundreds of years, sailing junks had to battle upstream against torrents of water. What did they look like? Well, I asked a fellow owned a rather wonderful bookstore in Salisbury, Connecticut. What was the authority on this kind of thing? And he said, oh, without a doubt, it's volume four, part three of Science and Civilization in China by Joseph Needham, a book I'd never heard of, but he happened to have a copy in his bookstore for $75. And I read it. It was 984 pages. It's an enormous tombstone of a book. And it was everything you can imagine about China's historical relationship with water. So it was about lighthouses and canal design and lock gates and rudders and anchors and the use of the compass and the shapes of buoys. And I was completely enthralled. I, I sat in the car outside his shop looking at this mighty volume and thinking, who on earth put this together? And not only that, but 
if what Mike McCabe had told me in the bookstore was true, 20-odd at that time, this was 15 years ago, I think there were 22 volumes in print, volumes equally detailed, equally massive, equally magisterial, about all these other subjects like ceramics and alchemy and astronomy and mathematics. Who was the chap that put them together? And so I vowed there and then that one day, if I ever became halfway competent at writing biographies, which at that stage in my career I never had, I would ultimately tackle this man. And when I started looking at his life three years ago or so, I discovered that he was just as fascinating as the books he was writing. But um, Joseph Needham was born in 1900 as the last century unfolded. He was the son of a doctor and a musician. But he was at first, in the first bit of his life, a world-class biochemist and embryologist, an unstoppably curious man. What were his early passionate intellectual forays? Well, difficult to know where to begin. I mean, first of all, he was intellectually very much a Marxist. So he was affected when he was a schoolboy, when he was 17 years old, by the events in Moscow. There was that. He was interested in the left generally. He was also a tremendously keen, muscular Christian, and he looked for a church that would accommodate his Marxist views and found one fairly rapidly in a village called Thaxted, about 20 miles from Cambridge. And what were the muscular Christians compared with other ones? Well, muscular Christians were ones that proselytized in a sort of healthy... They went walking, and they thought that boxing was a good thing to do. Boxing for Jesus. Boxing for Jesus, exactly. I saw quite a lot of that when I worked in the Philippines years ago. Wrestling for Jesus, I think it was in those days. But anyway, it was quite literally muscular Christianity. And the priest or the vicar that he liked most of all was a, in himself a remarkable man who's deserving, I think, of a biography. A chap called Conrad Noel, who was extremely left-wing himself. He used to preach with a parrot on his shoulder, which I rather amusingly distracting for the congregation, you would have thought. And he used to display his political affiliations by not only running the English flag up the spire of his church, but also the Sinn Féin flag to show that he was in favour of Irish home rule. And this didn't please the Tory hearties from Cambridge colleges who would swarm down on Saturdays to Thaxted, clamber up the steeple to tear down the flag. And this caused the police to be called and there were riots in the street. And of course, Needham thought this was all absolutely wonderful. So that interested him, but so did many other things. And you've mentioned these, I guess, aren't intellectual pursuits, but he was a very keen gymnosophist. Gymnosophy in those days being the polite term for what was very much a socialist practice, the practice of taking your clothes off in public. And he he loved doing that because it was felt by these socialists of, of this particular persuasion that if you took your kit off, that you revealed yourself to be entirely equal to your brother man or female And sometimes sister. more equal. Well, so, so I should think in Joseph Needham's case, who he was six foot four, he was gigantic. He looked like sort of Harry Potter on steroids. He had these <laughs> round glasses and great massive brown hair. And I should think naked, he was pretty impressive too. But I'll let you imagine that. Oh, I will imagine that. And I'm now imagining Morris dancing. That is too horrible to contemplate, really. The thought of him, you mentioned in your introduction, you hoped he didn't do it naked, and there is... I didn't say I hoped he didn't, I just wondered if he did. (laughs) (laughs) I think he didn't, and I think you would hope that he didn't do. But Morris dancing in and of itself is a pretty bizarre kind of calling when you gyrate in a very peculiarly pagan way with bells and straw around your wrists and ankles to tuneless music played on a pipe. He did also play the accordion very well in some... Wag mentioned the other day that uh, just as well being a nudist, he didn't play the cymbals. 
But uh, I said that I'm sure the accordion would do just the same job, only rather more slowly. <laughs> he, was all, he was also, well, I'm sorry, I, we shouldn't linger on this kind of thing. He was also a chain smoker, but he lived to 95, which should give smokers some comfort. He didn't smoke until noon had struck every day on his college clock. He went to that college in Cambridge, Keyes College, which is made famous by the film Chariots of Fire. And you may remember the athletes trying to run round the main court before that clock struck 12. Well, that was the clock that signaled when he could smoke. And when it did strike 12, he would light up and strike smoke like industrial Manchester, I think, for the rest of the day. <laughs> Simon Winchester with Ramona Caval on the book show, ABCRN. Eccentric, yes. And don't forget the origins of Monty Python in Cambridge. Serious and funny. But here's Needham himself with John Merson in a series we produced on his work. It certainly was a great surprise to me to find that for 600 years before the first invention of more or less accurate mechanical clocks in Europe, the Chinese had a tradition of hydromechanical clockwork, which embodied an escapement. The escapement, you know, has been called the soul of the mechanical clock. It is a device, a mechanical device, which divides time into lots of very small equal intervals. In fact, it's the ticking that we hear if we put the wristwatch to our ear. And this started not in the 14th century, in Dante's time, like it did in Europe, but in Yi Sing's time, in the beginning of the 8th century in China, possibly a lot earlier. But there can be no doubt at all that Yi Sing's clock, which was experimented on and set up in the College of All Sages, what is now called Xi'an in the west of China, that is early 8th century. And then from that, after that, many other clocks were built, generally in palaces and public buildings and uh, provincial governors' uh, residences and so on. Was this use of the clock uh, significant in terms of scientific observation? Because one thinks of the importance of time and accurate observation of time yeah. in the development of Western science, for instance. Of course, it's just as important as temperature. And until you can measure those things, modern science couldn't begin. There are, of course, other examples of technologies which have gone out of China through the Arabs and had a phenomenal effect in Europe. Uh, things such as gunpowder, the stirrup, and various simple technologies, which in China didn't have the same impact but in Europe, it did have enormous consequences. Yes, well, I mean, I think that is perfectly true. That's been shown in instance after instance. Uh, the ones you mention are very good examples of it, really, because the beginnings of the stirrup for boots, for riders, and for knights on horseback, first found around about 300 AD in China, and then uh, later on it surprised the Byzantines when they were fighting against the Avars and uh, similar Central Asian tribes uh, around about, that would be about the 8th or 9th century. And then uh, the same is quite true of gunpowder because that was a um, 9th century invention in China, the first chemical explosive known to man. It was used for warfare from about, well, from I know, we know from exactly when, almost exactly, 919 AD when it was first used as the a slow match in a flamethrower in China. And then around about 1000 AD, you get bombs and explosive shells, and not fired from guns, but uh, lobbed over by catapults. Uh, and then you get the fire rocket and you get the fire lance, so that everything developed there. And we believe that the barrel gun also did. Anyway, in Europe, it's uh, first found uh, just about 1320 AD. And it had an enormous effect in Europe. Both of these inventions, in fact, it's, it's a most extraordinary thing to reflect that the whole system of feudalism in medieval Europe did depend to a considerable extent 
upon uh, the knight, the knight in armour, for whom stirrups were absolutely indispensable in his use of the lance. And it's therefore extraordinary to reflect that just as a Chinese uh, invention helped very greatly to set up feudalism in Europe after the decline of the Roman Empire, so in the same way another Chinese invention came to Europe and uh, helped to break it down before everyone knows that the coming of gunpowder to Europe uh, was one of the things that heralded the end of the Middle Ages. It always amuses me to recall that only a hundred years later, in 1440, the artillery train of the King of France made a tour of the castles held by the English in various parts of France and battered them down at the rate of about one a month, which would have been utterly inconceivable only 40 years earlier. It's another great invention, of course, which had repercussions later in Europe, was paper. Yes, well, I think you're perfectly right in saying that paper was another of these inventions which didn't affect China so much, but had uh, revolutionary implications in Europe. I think this is quite true. Paper goes back rather further than people have usually thought. It's associated generally with discovery in the beginning of the second century AD, but actually it goes back a good bit more to about more like the second century BC, according to more recent discoveries in the desert in northwest China, where bits of paper have been preserved. And uh, no doubt it, it increased the efficiency and functioning of the civil service of the Chinese bureaucracy, as also did printing when it came into being in the 9th century AD. There was a larger spread of intake into the civil service, but it did not fundamentally upset the whole civilization, while in Europe, obviously, paper and then later on printing were earth-shaking in their consequences. Joseph Needham himself with John Merson, ABCRN. So these inventions in China itself augmented the power and spread of the vast civil service and did not have the same revolutionary effect as they did on reaching Europe. Back to Ramona and Simon Winchester. All right, the door's opened. He learns Chinese. Uh, he learns kind of everything about uh, Chinese and he learns calligraphy. He just throws himself into this whole new area. He ends up in China in 1943 because he's had a very big interest in how the Chinese uh, academics and intellectuals are going during the assault by the Japanese during the war. And he becomes part of a sort of a, a British diplomatic mission, doesn't he? He does. I mean, what had happened was that one of the sadder corollaries of the Japanese invasion, which began in 1937, was that all the great... Eastern Chinese universities in Shanghai and Beijing and Tianjin and Nanjing had been desecrated, had been sacked by the soldiers from Tokyo, and they had decided not to give up the ghost, but to pack up all their blackboards and books and Bunsen burners and things, put them on their backs or on the backs of horses or mules, and walk thousands of miles westwards into the comparative safety of free, unoccupied China, and so Beijing University set itself up in Kunming, Shanghai University set itself up in Chongqing, and so on and so forth. And these universities in the early 1940s sent a deputation out to England to say to the British academic community, you know, we need help. I mean, we're dying here. We've got the Japanese to the east. We've got the Himalayas and the Gobi Desert to the west and the north. We're getting no books, no supplies, nothing. Can you help us? And at first the British government dithered, but eventually Churchill himself got the message and said, yes, we must help these Chinese universities. We must send someone to find out what they need, and this person will then travel everywhere in free China, find out what's necessary, tell us in London, we'll put it on the aeroplane service that we run the famous air bridge over what was known as the hump 
from Calcutta to Kunming in western Yunnan province, and with any luck, we'll save these universities from dying. And so the man that they decided to send was this tall, flamboyant, loud, chain-smoking nudist, Chinese-speaking biochemist, Joseph Needham. (laughs) So they put him in a convoy, sent him to Calcutta. He got there in early 1943. They gave him an army uniform. They gave him a gun, which he had never had. It was just a Cambridge boffin. He had never touched a gun in his life. And put him on a plane and took off from Dum Dum Airport in March 1943 and arrived on a crystal clear spring morning in Kunming. And for him, it was everything that he expected and dreamed about. And the things that happened on that first day were to change everything in just the way as that incident in his rooms had done six years before. Because? Well, he records it once again in his diary. He had, I should say parenthetically, been over to New York just a few weeks previously to see Gui Zhen, who by this time was teaching a course at Columbia University. And she had said to him, Joseph... When you go to China, don't be arrogant like all your Western colleagues and assume, as people have been assuming for the previous hundred-odd years, that China is just a sort of bankrupted, intellectually docile civilization. We have, I know, she said, I know in my heart, um, from what my father taught me, that far from being on the periphery of civilization, China, in fact, created most of it. So please, I implore you, she said, when you go to China, keep an open mind. Well... That very first day, he records in his diary, blue, crystal clear day with the lovely, uplifted eaves of the houses and the early blossoms coming in on the trees and the snow dusting the tops of Tibetan mountains in the west, sitting, watching an old gardener top grafting a plum tree. And he sat smoking, watching this man for half an hour or so, and then suddenly realized that the way the man was grafting this tree was very different from the way that he remembered his own father grafting fruit trees in the back garden of their house in Clapham. So he thought he'd ask him to see if he could use this language that he had been taught by Gui Zhen back in Cambridge. And so he approached him and, and asked him some questions and found, amazingly, the man could understand him and he could understand the man's replies. So they started talking about grafting. And then Needham thought, well, perhaps also, as I can read Chinese, I can go back to the botanical archives here in Kunming and find out how old this technique that he's explained is. And moreover, I can find out by sending a few telegrams back to my colleagues in Cambridge and London, to botanists I know there, how old similar techniques would be in the West. Well, the upshot of all of this was that four or five days later, he was able to write down that he had incontrovertible evidence that fruit grafting techniques in China was 600 years older than the earliest known fruit grafting techniques recorded in ancient Greece. And this indicated to him that what Gui Zhen had told him was probably true, that Chinese scientific technical achievement, this kind of thing, antedated Western techniques by many, many, often hundreds of years. So he vowed there and then that as well as doing his job for the British government, he would try and collect, a, make a catalogue of all the things he could find that the Chinese did first. And it is it is amazing that it took Needham to report what was freely available, I suppose, in Chinese ancient texts well, long before yes, he had existed. Yes, you're absolutely right. And interestingly enough, I had a, an email a couple of weeks ago from a Chinese friend in, in Beijing who had seen the Olympic opening ceremonies, which, of course, all of us have seen now. And he said, you do realise, don't you, that this cavalcade of inventions that was on display 
in Beijing on that opening night was a list of inventions that we didn't know about until this Englishman came to China and told us. The extraordinary thing about Needham, who's known by every educated Chinese, his Chinese name is Li Yuse. And if you were to go into any Chinese restaurant down there in Melbourne, I do it here in New York, and say, have you ever heard of Li Yuse? They come alive and say, of course we have. I mean, most famous Englishman ever to have lived in China. Mm. He taught us about ourselves. Mm. So... Although, as you said, the information in theory was freely available, no one actually knew. Simon Winchester on The Book Show with Ramona Cabal in 2008. One man, massive scholarship, such a galvanising of Chinese enterprise under Deng Xiaoping and after. Simon's story is in Bomb, Book and Compass, and one wonders whether a similar realisation of what we have scientifically in Australia could finally wake up this nation and enable us to face a turbulent future with more understanding and confidence. The Science Show on RN.